I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And you know, Marcel, since this is our final wrap-up episode about a Harry Potter book, and the final episode we're recording in 2022, and we're mere weeks away from a new year, let's talk about some things we've left behind in the sorting chat. Oh, I love this. We're just we're just going to jump right into the emotional deep end right from the get-go. Amazing. I absolutely love that in the original list of possible <laughs> things we could discuss that we've left behind, you listed exclusively, your list was three things. It was homes, friends, and dreams. <laughs> and I was like, cool, so Marcel's doing great. <laughs> what I interpret from that list is that Marcel is thriving (laughs) Mm, why don't you go first (laughs) i'm gonna say that one of the things i feel like we are all getting better at leaving behind all the time but i am Mm -hmm. particularly leaving behind is ideas we had about what our adult lives were gonna look like Mm. that weren't serving us Mm -hmm. The older I get, the less attached I feel to these sort of vague notions of adulthood that Mm -hmm. used to really haunt me with this sort of uneasy sense that I was doing life wrong somehow. (laughs) And that at some point I would like click into adulthood and be like, ha ha, taxes. Mm. And I know I articulated this to you, Marcel, via text a little while ago, but I had a kind of revelation this year that it's not that we are going to turn into adults. It's that what being an adult means is going to turn into us. 
So we're not going to suddenly become baby boomers. <laughs> Millennial adults are just going to be a different kind of adult, just are a different kind yeah. of adult. Yeah. And that's and that's fine. So we don't have to hold on to these totally, you know, outdated notions of adulthood that actually are mostly about like class performance and mm. access to trappings of class identity that actually most of us we'll never have access yeah. to because, because the economy is broken. <laughs> That's so interesting because if we think about like the way growing up, all of the narratives about turning 30, turning 40, turning 50, they're, they were all... By the all... age of 30, you should have. Remember that meme? Yes. And also the anxiety that's always like paired with those, you know, and people having like crises about turning 40, for example. And I've internalized so much of that. But you're so right that being a 40 year old isn't going to mean suddenly like I stop having fun and wearing pink. Being 40 is is going to look a lot similar <laughs> to what 38 looks like. Being 40 is going to mean that now 40-year-olds are people who are whimsical and wear yes. head-to-toe purple jumpsuits. Yes. Like, that's what happens when you turn 40. Right. You change what being 40 means because mm -hmm. now you mm -hmm. are a person who is 40. And that's really liberating. It is very liberating. It yeah. is. I like that a lot. And, you know, that uh, that really... Uh, connects, I mm -hmm. think, to another thing on the list uh, that is leaving behind conventional understandings of oh academic gosh. knowledge production. Because similarly, what we do, while it is very fun and I would say relatively accessible, is also knowledge production. Listen, um, I, I got and tenure with this fucking podcast. And so, so it's kind of exciting this shit scholarly yeah. <laughs> turns out <laughs> turns out that's actually what i that's actually what i write on all of my job applications is <laughs> listen this bitch got tenure <laughs> from this fucking podcast so could you at least just give me a job <laughs> that's not you true. write this shit scholarly this shit scholarly for <laughs> real <laughs> but i still i remember so vividly when we first started the podcast and we both were like so this is, we're just tanking our careers, huh? We're just, oh, yeah. there's no jobs. The job market's broken. So we're just going <laughs> to do something that's absolutely going to just tank the fuck out of our careers, right? <laughs> no, yeah. Turns out we were ahead of our time. Ah, uh, dang. Oh, my God. Love that. Oh, my God. Marcel, I don't want to talk about dreams you've left behind unless they, <laughs> unless they were bad <laughs> dreams. <laughs> No, 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 no. That's okay. That's okay. I also, I also don't want to. <laughs> yeah, save that for therapy. Well, if there's one thing I know we'll never leave behind, it's the certainty that Hermione could have done better than Ron. <laughs> Let's talk about it in Granger Danger. Okay, well, listen, I really want to talk about the inevitability, the quote-unquote inevitability mm. of Hermione and Ron, because it's really, it's one of those things that this 
goddamn book series has been priming us for uh, since book four. And the movies have been priming us for since movie three. And uh, I just want to put a little bit of pressure on how that works, how this is meaningful. So I wanted to start by talking a little bit about homosocial triangulation, (laughs) which is... Oh my God, your favorite topic. It's my favorite topic. It's one of my favorite ways to ruin a beloved series for my (laughs) students. It should make it better for them, though, shouldn't it? It makes it better for some of them. Yeah, some okay. of them, some of them need to overcome a little bit of internalized homophobia before they can really, yeah, before they can really embrace the freedom of <laughs> believing that their favorite characters are actually gay. <laughs> the liberatory possibilities of homosocial triangulation. <laughs> New T-shirt idea. Okay, so homosocial triangulation. I actually don't know what the dictionary definition is. Here is There's how I no explain it to my dictionary definition of homosocial triangulation. Well, good. Here's mine. Homosocial triangulation is when you have two boy characters who spend a lot of time together and are really close, and you add in a third girl character that one of them is going to be attracted to so that they can literally spoon all the way to Mordor and no one gets threatened by their sexuality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is actually famously no homosocial triangulation in Lord of the Rings because there's no women. So it's just... That's right. Because the elves are a metaphor for women. It's just homosocial. The end. (laughs) But, no, but... In the movies, they in the movies they reassure the audience that Sam loves this bartender named Rosie who has zero function except to reassure us that he's not pegging Frodo the whole way to Mordor. Pegging the whole way? One cannot simply peg their way into Mordor. <laughs> Anyway, I think I really like about homosocial triangulation is that it does give us this kind of everything's gay world, which is Mm -hmm. how I understand the world personally. My hot take is I don't believe in heterosexuality. And I think anybody who's attached to a notion of themselves as straight, basically, I think being straight is a little bit homophobic. I'm just saying. I'm just (gasps) saying. I'm just saying. (laughs) But it does, right? It, It becomes this sort of continuum. Where it's like, okay, we've got homosociality and homosexuality, and they're like neither mutually exclusive nor identical, but they sort of suggest mm-hmm. this like range of like everybody's participating in something gay, unless I guess you're Mike Pence and are like, no wait, he he's the one who won't be around other women. Unless his wife is present. Continuously homosocial. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's a long history of, of of homosociality and the idea that, like, women just hang out with women and men just hang out with men. And what do they do behind closed doors? Don't ask. It's all very, <laughs> it's all very innocent, we assure you. But yeah, this, like, sort of narrative trope of introducing a woman that it's like, wow, both of these men are really horny for her. What do you have other examples that aren't Lord of the Rings? Uh, 
I mean, I've, there's this book series that I've been reading um, called a Harry Potter, mm. and there's <laughs> these these two boy characters, Harry and Ron, and then they throw in a third character named Hermione, and we, the audience, are reassured that. Harry and Ron never fuck because they're uh, both potentially attracted to Hermione. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they work <laughs> out all of those those homosexual tensions. Out. They get sweaty, but it's okay because they're they're getting buff for Hermione. I'm sorry. This I know is... I said no fucking around, and I am just unhinged. The idea of Ron and Harry going to the gym <laughs> and just doing some lifting. <laughs> Just do some lifts. Oh, my God. Okay. All right. Marcel, tell us what is radical or exciting about homosocial triangulation other than that it's fun to make everything gay. So, Hannah, I'm sure you remember giving us an introduction to compulsory heterosexuality way back when we talked about Lauren Berlant and Michael Warner's uh, essay, Sex in Public. Sure do. And you talk to us about the way in which we can start to see the world as being constructed in order to reproduce heterosexuality and in order to, like, reward heterosexuality. Mm -hmm. And so I want to talk about the sort of inevitability of Hermione and Ron, because in addition to Hermione's inclusion in the trio as being a kind of homosocial triangulation, it also suggests that, like, well, at the end, at least two of them are going to have to are going to have to pair off. Mm, that is the inevitable conclusion, isn't it? That like one of the guys is going to get a girl. Yeah. Who is she going to choose? She's going to she's got to choose one of them. And so much of the seventh book is about reassuring Ron that she's chosen Ron. Uh-huh. And like, I do want to say that shared trauma is like a legit way to bond and that shared trauma is a very understandable thing that people base long-term relationships on. I'm not sure it's always going to be healthy, but <laughs> that's probably depending on the people and the trauma. Whomst among us um, has not done some trauma bonding? <laughs> So, like, I don't think that Hermione and Ron are impossible, I guess is what I'm trying Mm. to say. But they are treated as inevitable. But they are treated as inevitable. Like, the narrative can't come to a conclusion unless they somehow, she has to end up with somebody. It wouldn't be narratively satisfying if there wasn't a sort of culmination of a romantic relationship. That's right. And it has to be Ron because Harry already gets everything and he's inherited his father's pension for redheads. So, like... (laughs) So grim. Heterosexuality is so grim. Um, <laughs> you've got a personal, like, headcanon that mm-hmm. Ron and Harry are, if not fucking, at least sweatily working out beside each other. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But- any, any other sexy headcanons happening <laughs> to maybe challenge this inevitability? Ron is definitely hot for crumb. And so mm, yes. his obsession with Hermione is really a way of, like, fantasizing that he gets to either be Crumb or be with mm, Crumb. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've also decided that Hermione and Harry probably hooked up at least a few times while Ron was sulking in Shell Cottage because, you know, it's a stressful time. It's the end of the year and sometimes you just want to cuddle. 
and sometimes cuddling gets sexy. So yeah. like, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just I I enjoy this narrative because I really think that the idea that Hermione saves herself for Ron sucks. Um, I think it's very boring. And that a hundred percent of our protagonists will only ever have sex with one person in their lives. Yeah. And that you can't have sex with friends and still like maintain like a real friendship. Truly. You know? Like sometimes sometimes friends hook up. Sometimes friends fuck. Listen. I've said, <laughs> I've said fuck in this episode so many times. <laughs> Coach loves it. Oh my god. Oh my god. Okay, so the other my my sort of thing I really noticed about Hermione in this read through is significantly less sexy. Ooh. Um, <laughs> ooh, not sexy. Ooh. 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 Which is that for all that like so much of the way Hermione is treated narratively in this book is like frustrating and disappointing, particularly our revelation that she's basically spends this book being trained to be a wife. She is like <laughs> finally and firmly established in this book as somebody whose superpower is that she's super good at reading. Mm -hmm. And that is, I, I was going back, I mean, we've got the obvious one, which is that she's like, brings up a, a carefully curated reference library with her. Like she doesn't just grab a bunch of books. She actually very thoughtfully curates a library of what she thinks will be useful while they're traveling. But more significantly, I've been thinking again about the fact that Dumbledore leaves her the... Um, Beetle, Tales of... Tales of Beetle the Bard. Exactly, that Dumbledore leaves her the Tales of Beetle the Bard. And that he both wants them to know about the Hallows, but also does not want them to pursue the Hallows. Mm -hmm. And that understanding of like, we need to understand, we need to know what these are. We need to figure out the relationship between this fairy tale and reality, the sort of complex way in which history has been rewritten as myth. We need to find the ways of then going back and doing historical research to sort of map these stories against real people. You know, we have all of these ways that we need to sort of, quote unquote, like solve the puzzle of this book. But as you know, from being somebody who teaches first year English classes, that desire to treat a book like a riddle or a puzzle that can be solved and then discarded is quite a sort of early understanding of how reading works. And that actually, sort of, as we develop our skills as readers, what we start to do is understand the books are not solvable, but are rather sort of texts that you visit and revisit and revisit and continue to find these sort of layers within that are sometimes... Mm -hmm enrich other layers and sometimes totally shift your reading and, and that it's that sort of that willingness to, to keep revisiting and to keep going deeper that sort of constitutes critical reading. And what we see in this book is that a particular kind of critical reading is really needed to both solve the riddle, but then also figure out that you're not supposed to be going for the hallows. <laughs> and that when Dumbledore chooses somebody to be the reader, the bearer of the text, the interpreter of this very complex situation. It's Hermione who he chooses to give the book to. You know, and at the end of the day, I know that I like critique the fetishization of books, etc. <laughs> but I think the ability to read critically and carefully, this is going to shock everybody, 
Mm -hmm. I think it's a very useful skill. (laughs) You know what? I know I've been keeping those cards close to my chest this whole time. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hot take, Hannah. That's a that's an unexpected hot take. Sure not making a whole podcast about it. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> For all that, Hermione gets backed into some frustrating narrative corners. She remains our patron saint of critical reading. Patron saint of critical reading. That's another sticker idea. I love it. That's what I'm doing. Just just generating sticker ideas. That's what I'm here for. Sticker generator McGregor over here. well since we're thinking about things we won't leave behind i would like to nominate the material history of class vis-a-vis fashion as a keeper let's have hannah give us an example in luke book okay so I really wanted to do a Luc Buick about wedding dresses and particularly about Fleur's whole outfit. Mm-hmm. And what I found out along the way is that actually the history of wedding dresses is pretty boring. Oh. Historically, up until quite recently, it was mostly just people were closely at. <laughs> They just were like, oh, I'll put on a nicer dress. The end. I've got a nice dress I can wear to this occasion. It's my wedding. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And then I tried, I was like, oh, well, you know, what if I look up, like, the sort of significance of the the goblin-made tiara? And then, but, like, you tried doing a history of shit the English Empire has stolen. Like, I don't, we'd be here. Who am I, Edward Said? We'd be here all day. And so I am going to, as is my way, focus Mm. in on a color. Oh. I love talking about the history of colors. And so we're going to talk about specifically the history of the white wedding dress and the sort of significance of white as a color, particularly for clothing. So I want to start off by giving you a, just quoting the, the one sentence where we hear about Fleur's wedding dress. Because I think it's really interesting what what is noted about it. Fleur was wearing a very simple white dress, and it seemed to be emitting a strong silvery glow. That glow is coming from her, it is established. Mm-hmm. And because it is her wedding, it has the remarkable effect of like normally her glow makes other women look uglier. But on her wedding, it makes the women around her look more beautiful. Fuck, I hate these books so much sometimes. <laughs> I know! <laughs> Every once in a while, you read a sentence and you're like, oh, you hate women. Wow. Oh, my God. But I was really struck, you know, not only by the whiteness of the dress, but also by its simplicity. That, mm-hmm. That's going to come. That's going to come back. So let me start with this. Marcel, do you know where the tradition, the contemporary Western tradition of wearing white on your wedding day comes from? Assuming that I haven't looked at the script. Don't read answer, ahead. I know I would never. I would have assumed that it came from some kind of some kind of archetypal figure, and I probably would have guessed Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, the second, oh. not the first. Yes, not the first. She never got the first. Never got married. <laughs> <laughs> Fame, that was kind of her whole thing, wasn't it? That was her whole thing. <laughs> she wore Fine. white every day. Fine. Okay, well, I mean, good guess. Very solid guess. It's not 
Queen Elizabeth II, but it is a queen. It's Queen Victoria. Okay. All right. Um, this, and this checks out. That's like a lot of contemporary Western traditions come from the Victorian period, mm-hmm. both because of the way that the monarchy was very deliberately sort of framing Victoria as a celebrity in order to sort of increase the popularity of the monarchy amongst the, the British public, but also because of the particular sort of print culture moment that aligned with Queen Victoria, right? Because we know that the Victorian age is also a sort of major historical moment of print expansion, particularly mm-hmm. the the expansion of cheap print. So we get lots and lots more magazines and newspapers, and we are starting to get cheaper ways to reproduce images as well. And so we've got a real surge of mass print culture during this period, that allows for trends to sort of catch on and spread in a way that they really hadn't previously. So Queen Victoria wears this this white wedding dress and it gets mm-hmm. represented all over the place and it very quickly becomes a trend. And then mm. it just catches on. And like, like I said, like so many things from the Victorian period, it catches on and then we all just keep doing it forever. We just do it. Like, like <laughs> Christmas trees. Yeah. Like that was that was a like Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Like it was a a tradition in Germany. And so they did it. Prince Albert was German. They brought a Christmas tree into the the palace. And then everybody was like, oh, Christmas trees. Oh, a tree in your home for Christmas? Novel. And then we all just do it forever. That's incredible. It's amazing. And I'm sure somebody has written some fascinating book about explaining why the the Victorians had such a sort of outsized historical impact. My theory is the way that it aligned with this particular print culture moment. But if there's other Victorianists out there who would like to fill in some of those gaps, you know I love to hear about it. You know I want to hear about it. Anyway, so before I found this little, you know, this little nugget of history, Queen Victoria, mm-hmm. white wedding dress... The narrative I had in my head, which is, I think, a narrative lots of folks have, is that you wear white on your wedding day to signify that you're a virgin. Yes. Yes. I would definitely have assumed that. And that is definitely one of those, like, retroactively applied narratives, like white caught on as a trend. And then later on, people were like, oh, yeah, no, it's the virgin color. It absolutely wasn't a virgin color. Queen Victoria was not advertising to the world that she was a virgin. Unlike Queen Elizabeth II, who... Who was, but didn't, (laughs) for the most part, do that by dressing in white. Exactly. She wasn't famously dressed in white. In fact, probably the color that was associated with virginity during this period would most likely have been blue, because that's the color of the Virgin Mary. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah. But white was certainly associated with purity and with cleanliness. Mm-hmm. So that history of white, like sort of the significance of white in general and white clothing in particular, is really complicated. So I'm just going to do, I'm going to give us like sort of a little overview in this segment. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm drawing here in particular on an article in Nautilus magazine by Courtney Humphreys called We Have Hit Peak, sorry, called Have We Hit Peak Whiteness? That opens with some very interesting anecdotes about bleaching your teeth and the sort of cultural shift where it's like people now want their teeth to be a color that truly no tooth has ever been in nature. But in that article, Humphreys explains that as European colonists started encountering other groups in America and West Africa, 
white started to indicate cleanliness and racial refinement and civility. Hmm. So way before we had these sort of virginity associations, it was a color of civility linked to race and empire. And she points out that that we can see this in 17th and 18th century portraits depicting European settlers, particularly women, um, who, in the words of historian Kathleen Brown, looked like weird white ghosts. <laughs> Which is great because they made them so, like, unsettlingly pale in, in art as a way, right, of, of signifying their sort of distance and difference from, particularly from Black people. Right. So this idea of, like, racializing color and linking purity and the white race to the color white is linked to this concept called chromophobia. Have you heard of this mm. before? Yeah, the fear of uh, Google. That's a good joke. I really like that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong. It's the fear of color. No, oh, okay. And there is a really great book by David Batchelor called Chromophobia, where he basically argues that that this fear of color lurks in a lot of Western thought and that we see a lot of, you know, particularly in the world of design, for example, a lot of anxiety around color and a tendency towards like, we want clean, simple lines. We want minimalism. We want white walls. We want what like this is all part of this complex Western anxiety about color. And he says that one of the ways that Western thought tends to sort of purge color is by attributing it to some kind of foreign body. So like the Oriental, the feminine, mm. the vulgar, the the mad, the right. So color becomes sort of associated right. with something that is other in a pathologized mm -hmm. way or by making it like cosmetic and frivolous color as unserious. Right. Right. So we've got the sort of long history of suspicion of color in in Western culture. And we also have an interesting history of it being linked to purity and cleanliness, which, again, these things are mm -hmm. all so entangled, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you just can't yeah. divide them. For example, take a look at, like, 19th century ivory soap ads. Well, I mean, to begin with, the fact that it's called ivory is significant. It sure is, right? And that ivory links it both to whiteness and to colonialism, right? The extraction mm -hmm. of, of goods from the African continent. And mm -hmm. we have ads from that that period where the soap is literally depicted as like cleaning the blackness off Black people's skin. Ooh. So this association of Blackness with dirtiness and whiteness with cleanness, like it's very, it's very sort of say the quiet part out loud. Like it's an extremely explicit white supremacist ideology linking whiteness to purity and cleanliness. And there has often been a similar meaning in white clothing. So it's a way of showing off your ability to keep your clothes clean. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're very fancy, you can dress all in white and you don't have to worry about immediately spilling a whole jar of mustard on yourself. <laughs> or if you're not talking about just me and my personal anxieties, it's a way of showing that you're not doing dirty physical labor because you can keep your white clothes white. And then, of course, we see like an intensification of white clothing as linked to white supremacy through mm -hmm. the 19th and 20th centuries, particularly via the visual iconography of the Ku Klux Klan where white becomes explicitly linked to white supremacy. Interestingly, though, mm -hmm. white clothes historically weren't only an 
outward sign of purity or cleanliness. Like, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm wearing white and then you can tell I'm, like, able to keep myself clean. Actually, it was I'm wearing white and the white clothes are making me clean. They are cleaning me. Oh, weird. Yeah. So, so historically, and I don't, I'm being like sloppy with dates here. Apologies to the historians in the audience. But people used to wear white linens against their skin and then their sort of overdresses over top, right? Like overclothes over top. And, and so you'll often see that sort of like, you know, Renaissance outfits where there's like some white coming out at the top of the neck and some white coming out at the, so you're wearing all of these white linens against your Mm -hmm. skin. And part of the idea was that those white linens drew the impurities out of your body. So like they got dirty, but they made you clean. That is some pseudoscience cuckoo bananas nonsense. Well, what's really interesting about it is that it is pseudoscience cuckoo bananas nonsense and also it does explain why people historically didn't bathe as much because that's actually a pretty good way to stay clean because if you wear linens like natural fabrics next to your body you sweat into those yes they absorb sweat and dirt you take those off you clean them Right. Your body's still relatively clean because the sweat and dirt got absorbed into the clothes. The outer clothes are still clean. So it's just the linens that you need to clean. Okay. Like when, if you wore a uniform in high school, you would often wear a t-shirt underneath because that way your uniform shirt wouldn't have yellow armpits because your t-shirts absorbed the yellow armpits. In the military, right? You would wear a t-shirt underneath your, like you wear underclothes so that the underclothes absorb your your body's various excretions. And of course, the ability to like own a whole bunch, to keep those whites white, basically, Mm -hmm. to like own multiple changes of linens and then have like servants who could wash them for you on a regular basis, that was itself also a sign of wealth. So we've still always got this association of cleanliness with wealth and cleanliness with whiteness and white clothes with all of these, with all of these things. Wow. Wow. So in the 1840s, when Queen Victoria, you know, wore this white wedding dress, white didn't necessarily mean virginity, but it probably meant cleanliness and purity. But another thing, it very, another thing that commentators of the time noted was the dress's simplicity. So at other formal occasions, she would often wear silver and gold, like metallic threads in her, in her clothes as a sign of her, of her royalty. But she didn't wear fancy metallic clothes. She didn't wear, you know, her royal robes. She wore a very simple white dress with just a few key details, including British-made lace. It was very important. She made sure that all of the sort of, you know, frills on it were all made by British artisans. Mm -hmm. And historians have argued that her desire to wear the simple white dress was part of a deliberate public relations strategy on the part of the monarchy to position Victoria as a wife first and a queen second. So on her wedding day, she dresses like a simple, modest woman, not like a queen. I actually don't know this. Is she queen before she gets married? Yes. 
And because she is queen, she has to um, she has to propose because a monarch can't be proposed to. So she proposes to Albert. Interesting. And so she, you know, her presence as a monarch, the only previous long reigning English queen we have is the one who just never got married. That's as right. As established. Um, <laughs> and so there's this problem, right? Victoria is like, what do we do with this this woman who's in charge when mm-hmm. as a culture we think that women naturally cannot be in charge and so this is one way of managing that is sort of this this outfitting her on her wedding day not as a queen but as a wife and i think that that is really interesting in light of the fact that the only details we get about fleur's gown are that it's white and it's simple oh man right she's still radiant but it's a radiance that no longer makes her stand out above other women Mm mm-hmm so mm-hmm. she's got this simple gown, which suggests to me that she's. this is the moment where she's shifting from this sort of, you know, semi-mythical object of collective desire mm-hmm. to wife. Because the next time we see her, she is wearing an apron and making casseroles. Oh, my God. The end. This book is all about teaching women to be wives. Ugh. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. To be honest, I'm not super committed to this next segment. We can probably get rid of it. It's called Orchidius. The one where we each note something that we were delighted by in this final read-through. And you know, Marcel, delight is not our strength. We're not good at it. But for this final Orchidius, I want to go first. Okay. So I am going to read you a short passage from this book. Mm-hmm. The idea that Gryffindor might have stolen the sword was unpleasant to him. He had always been proud to be a Gryffindor. Gryffindor had been the champion of Muggleborns, the wizard who had clashed with the pure-blood-loving Slytherin. Maybe he's lying, Harry said, opening his eyes again. Griphook. Maybe Gryffindor didn't take the sword. How do we know the goblin version of history's right? Does it make a difference? asked Hermione. Changes how I feel about it, said Harry. So when I first read this scene, I found it really disappointing. Okay. Right? That Harry finds out this this difficult piece of history and that he's like, well, yeah, maybe Griphook's lying. Yeah, actually, probably Griphook's line. He's not. We can't trust goblins. But <laughs> on this read through, I find it a really fascinating moment of both doubt and possibility. Hmm. So it's this moment in which he says, maybe, maybe he's lying. We see Harry struggling with this revelation. A revelation that, you know, it's then going to play out in his revelations about Dumbledore, in his larger Mm -hmm. revelations about realizing that people who he has, you know, 
tended to worship as heroes are actually just humans mm-hmm. who have done imperfect things like all people do imperfect things because we're just people. Mm-hmm. And in this moment, what we see is not him deciding not to believe Griphook, but questioning. And yeah, he's questioning Griphook, but he's also questioning equally the history he has received. Mm-hmm. Right? This th- sort of mythos of Godric Gryffindor as this, this unvarnished hero. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't resolve. You know, Hermione says, does it make a difference? And, and Harry makes it clear, you know, and she means, does it make a difference for the decision we're about to make? Mm-hmm. The practical decision that we, we have to make about Griphook. Yeah. And Harry makes it very clear that for him, it's an ethical question. Right. It changes how I feel about it. It changes what he thinks will be right or wrong in this moment. And that for me, it's not resolved by the end of the book. He hasn't decided how he feels about Gryffindor. You know, our terrible epilogue suggests some 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 sort of resolution. But I think we've at this point established pretty clearly that we consider the epilogue (laughs) non-canon. Yes, yes. The epilogue is fan fiction Just written by the author. Rip it out of all my copies. Mm-hmm. But it opens this possibility. And that possibility gets more fully realized in terms of his exchange with Dumbledore. But it still lingers there in the text as this beginning to realize that just none of these divides are as simple as you thought, that mm-hmm. actually, oh, maybe wizarding culture was built on the theft of goods from oppressed people. And that is, you know, a moment of political consciousness. And we don't know which way it's going to take him. A lot of people experience that moment of political consciousness and push it way down. They push it into the oubliette and they never think about it again. Yep. <laughs> but For a lot of people, these moments are the beginning of something really transformative. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, it just caught my attention as I was rereading this time as this, this unresolved moment of potential that tells us that like, actually, maybe this is a generation of people who aren't gonna simplistically receive those narratives. Maybe Harry's gonna become somebody who like advocates for the repatriation of stolen cultural goods. Maybe. I love that. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe he'll stop being an Auror because he realizes that it doesn't bring him joy and uh, instead become the opposite of a museum curator. A museum decurator. Yes. All right, Marcel, what about you? I mean, I think that I think that we've talked about this before in one of our book seven episodes. I can't remember which one specifically, but I just really want to re- the first one. The first that would I suspect yeah, that, would, that would make sense. Um, yeah, I just want to reiterate the fact that um, this was very much the first time that I read this book and knew what was going on the entire time. And so was able to, like, follow the Hallows versus Horcrux's dilemma, understand what the stakes were, Mm. understand why Dumbledore had opted to weave the most intricate of webs instead of just saying to Harry, listen, (laughs) (laughs) I did this thing. It was bad. (laughs) You can do better. And you know what? I'm not saying that the book could have been simpler. I am saying that I experienced a tremendous amount of pleasure finally understanding it. Oh, yeah. And that's on rereading. 
yeah, it feels good to have, it feels good to to feel like I understand what's going on. And I think also that it makes the events of the novel feel less predestined and more like Harry really has to make a choice and that he chooses the brave choice. Oh, Harry. Harry. He does choose the brave choice. And now I'm thinking about Harry dying and that's not good. Oh, Because don't we're worry, about Hannah. to go into the saddest <laughs> segment. <laughs> Okay, well, a segment I'm ready to let go of forever is devastating fun facts because (gasps) I'm really done with crying over your so-called fun facts about Hogwarts students and staff not mentioned in the books because these things were not part of Harry's journey. Hannah, I had no idea. They're too sad, Marcel. Well, hold on to your hats. (laughs) All right, okay, okay, okay. Fun fact. Dudley graduates high school while still in hiding, and contrary to Petunia's wishes, he does a gap year in France. And finally free from his parents' emotional manipulation and abuse, he finds himself incredibly shy and unsure how to make friends. Also, it's important to add that his French is terrible, so he mainly hangs out in these English-speaking enclaves. But as a result of this, eventually he stumbles across this community of North American wannabe revolutionaries who like to hang out late into the night, smoking hash and drinking and yelling about capitalism, you know, as we do. And Dudley is thus exposed to all kinds of new ways of thinking about the world and about his place in it as a white man. And he learns about anti-racism and feminism and revolutionary Marxism. And it's very important to note that he's too embarrassed to admit how little he knows about anything. And so he spends his afternoons reading books by the philosophers that his acquaintances just like toss around like it's no big deal. And this is how he gains all of this knowledge. And so when he returns home, he really wants to go to university and study philosophy. But Vernon will not hear of it because Dudley has to take over Grenning's when Vernon retires. And so Dudley apprentices at Grenning's and eventually becomes the senior manager. But unsurprisingly, he and Vernon grow very distant. Dudley goes to things like poetry readings and art house cinemas, and Vernon just isn't interested in trying new things. Um, But after Vernon passes away, Dudley sells Grenning's and opens a used bookstore. And he adopts a cat named Derek, and he and Harry get together and play bridge with Petunia and Mrs. Fig every Wednesday evening. And it's nice. Fun fact, there's absolutely no way that Lupin and Tonks would have named Harry the godfather of baby Teddy if they had known how soon Harry would become the child's caregiver. Harry is truly unprepared for the responsibility of raising a baby at the tender age of almost 18, fresh out of a war. He makes a lot of mistakes. And number 12 Grimmauld Place is an absolute disaster zone for months. But Harry's community is there for him and for little Teddy. 
Andromeda, Teddy's grandmother, she moves in for a while until Harry and Teddy have figured out their routine. The Weasleys take turns babysitting during the day so that Harry can finish his last year at Hogwarts by correspondence. And, you know, parenting doesn't come naturally to Harry, whatever that means, but he really, really loves it. He is totally enchanted by Teddy's curiosity and his stubbornness. He loves to get on the floor and play with his godson, and he, you know, very quickly starts to think of Teddy as his child. And in this way, Harry really gets to have a bit of that childhood that he lost when living with the Dursleys. You know, and it's hard being a dad, but being a dad is the absolute happiest he's ever been. So that's nice. Fun fact. Argus Filch decides to retire instead of cleaning up the demolished Hogwarts castle. And good for him. He and Mrs. Norris move to a flat in Hogsmeade where he opens a little studio restoring magical paintings. And now that he's retired... Filch finally has time to paint, which was once a passion of his. And he finds quite a bit of popularity among the British magical community. His ability to depict the magical world in a style that eventually gets named still painting is widely considered to have established a new genre. Good for him. That one actually was fun. That was Congratulations, fun. Congratulations, Marcel. You did one fun one. I took out, I decided to delete the part where he paints a picture of Fred. Shut up, you monster. <laughs> ah, but speaking of Fred, fun fact, George never stops joking around with Fred. Even though Fred went on, instead of coming back as a ghost, George can feel his twin's presence everywhere he goes. Sometimes the joke shop employees can hear George chuckle, most likely at something clever that Fred would have said. I'm just straight up crying. (laughs) Okay, fun fact. This is the last one before Creature Report. Fun fact. After the Battle of Hogwarts, once it seems safe to do so, Hermione takes a port key to Australia to find her parents. After a few weeks, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I just, I know that coach is muted, but I just saw her sob. <laughs> After a few weeks, she finds them near a small town outside of Perth. They live on a lavender farm and they keep a roadside stand where they sell bunches of dried lavender and fresh pressed lavender oil. It's a specialty of theirs because for some reason they have trouble sleeping and this is one of the only things that helps. Crookshanks, bless him, sleeps all day in a sunny patch of catnip by the front door. And they seem really, really happy. And Hermione visits them every day for about a week before deciding whether or not to lift the enchantment. And now it's time for Creature Report. (laughs) Why are you like that? She left... She left it uncertain. She left it uncertain so we don't know. That way it's more devastating, Coach. You guys. She leaves us forever in uncertainty. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe she doesn't. They can't sleep. They can't sleep because somewhere in their hearts they know they lost their daughter. But also they're really happy. I don't know why I'm like this. (laughs) I need a 
minute before creature report. I gotta like get a get a clean out. <laughs> I don't know if this counts as a fun fact, but now a little fan service to all our listeners with toddlers. <laughs> I present to you creature report. Coach, activate creature report. Creature report. Creature report. Creature report. We finally hear the tale of Regulus's epic sail in a teeny tiny boat that with two wizards could not float and creature along for the ride. Traumatized by watching his favorite human die. Dance break. Go house elf. Go house elf. Go house elf. <laughs> We're done with the fun facts, which please at ease till our appendix wrap up. God, I am in physical pain. Wow. Oh my god. I'm sorry that I'm like this. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. If you want more of us, which you obviously do, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Oh Witch Please. And, of course, on Patreon at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease, where you can get all kinds of unbelievable perks like movie watch-alongs and bloopers that we pull out of these episode recordings when everybody loses their shit. And then there are comics inspired by the bloopers, and there are interviews with incredible people with incredible thoughts. It is a truly shocking quantity of bonus content. Also, you should read Hannah's book. You should. It's the first physical book I've read in years, and it was worth it. Absolutely wonderful. Totally worth the wait. It's called A Sentimental Education. And if you prefer to listen to Hannah read it to you, she also made the audiobook. I did. I made it for you. Just for me. Which Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes at ohwitchplease.ca, along with transcripts. And our new team member, Gabby, has been creating a bunch of exciting new web content. So if you generally listen on a podcatcher and haven't checked out our website in a while, go check it out. It's looking very sharp. Mm-hmm. Also, exciting recent addition, we have our own merch store now. So go check out some of our beautiful beautiful merch. Special thanks, as always, to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. To our Witch Please apprentice, Zoe Mix. And to our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. At the end of every episode, we shout out everyone who has left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So you've got to review us if you want to hear me take a bow the night is over this masquerade is i think this is not the right key getting 
older. I don't know this song. Oh, it's Take a Bow by Madonna. The curtain's down. There's no one here. And then Babyface comes in. He's like, there's no one here. There's no one in the crowd. It's great. It's a great song. Incredible. Absolute ballad. Incredible. Gonna go listen. Thanks this week to Mission Visible, Els, Nick Stephanie, whose review is titled <clears throat> Owls, 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 Owls. Mermanda, who would like us to turn the whistle down just a bit. Gargoyle in the library, who apparently knows Coach. And Snapdragon. 1975. We'll be back soon to begin our eighth season, which we have lovingly entitled The Appendix Season. We are so excited about this one. It's going to be similar in structure in terms of the episodes, but they won't be looking at a specific Harry Potter book. They'll be looking at the series as a whole. That means Coach can't yell at us for jumping between books anymore because we can talk about all of them at the same time. Still, we want to take a moment at the end of the seventh season to say thank you so much for going through this whole series with us one book at a time. We're excited to try something a little bit different with this new season while still talking about Harry Potter. But until then... Later, witches!